You're listening to the Sokin Podcast. Your favorite source for gaming, film, and internet debate starts now. Hello, everyone. I'm Eva, and welcome to the Sokin Podcast Valentine's Day special. With me today are Leoren. Hello. I am Leoren. And Jay Strayson. But you said it wrong because it's actually Jace Drayson. And I'm also Cademan in some circles. I wholeheartedly apologize for messing that up. How are you two doing today? It's a pretty good afternoon, chilling at the house, playing a little video games, doing a little RP. What about you, Leo? Mm, it's fabulous. Um, I had to work a little bit today, so it wasn't the perfect day. But I've got a glass of wine and I'm, I'm chilling here with my wife and kids. And, you know, just digging, digging, relaxing. I've got some caramel corn in front of me, so if I crunch a little bit, that's why. Just, yeah, what a relaxing day, ready to talk it out. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you two are having an excellent day. Well, we're going to be discussing the recent events in Sokin since the last podcast, loot boxes and pay-to-play gaming, the upcoming new season of the Clone Wars series, and we'll have a special interview with a member of one of Sokin's newest guilds. Well, I like all of those subjects, mostly. Um, <laughs> not a super fan of, say, loot boxes per se, but we'll get to that, I'm sure. Um, it's it's kind of weird to say the newest things going on in Soaking. It's certainly last time we did this was a couple years ago, and a lot has happened in Soaking in that amount of time. All right. Well, we can move into our first topic today, which is the Soaking gaming community itself and what's been going on since our last official podcast two years ago. Well, I'll tell you the most important thing for me uh, has been me. I'm new to the Soken community since our last podcast. And I gotta say, man, it's been phenomenal. My first experience has been just in the game that I'm in and reading up on the history of stuff and even watching some of the old videos and some of the old podcasts. Man, Soken has just exploded in the last couple of years. It's well, been really I mean, impressive. You're, you say you're new in the last two years, which you are, but you've really already hit your mark. Like you're, you're well over a year now into the community. So, I mean, you've been around. When we're talking about the last two years, you've been around for most of it. I get around, Chase. I've heard this Um, about you. But I mean, it's one of those things about how much time has gone on and how much stuff Soken has really gotten into in that time. It's been a lot branching out into other games and really expanding the influence and the reach of the Soken community. It's been really cool to see. Like for me, though, it's not new for me because I've been a part of that reach. So for me, it's not something that like, oh, Soken has been something else. I've only known Soken in this context. So it's been interesting seeing some of the history of Soken pre my joining. It's been cool to read up on a lot of that stuff and then knowing what's coming. Yeah, it's a, it's a really cool thing considering the last time we did a podcast, all we had was SWOTOR guilds. And I think at that time, we actually had four SWOTOR guilds, one of which is now kind of combined into another. We had the Knights, which was the Jedi, the Lords, which is the Sith. I think we still had Elite back then, which was the Bounty Hunter type guild, and SAR, which is the Trooper guild. I think that now there's just the three, um, but we've jetted out in ESO with Divine Conclave that Leo and I do, Invictus Imperium, which I have done in the past and a lot of our community members worked through. We're in WoW, a couple different guilds in WoW, Brotherhood of the Horse, Red Wolf Clan. We're in Final Fantasy XIV with Astral Dawn. We're in Guild Wars 2 with Valiant Ascent. And of course, the D&D group, which does tabletop type RP on our Discord. It's really kind of remarkable to think that a single guild of Jedi has blown up into like 10 different guilds and a bunch of different games. I remember I was on council when we first even started talking about jumping into Lords. 
where I was in council just shortly thereafter. And it was kind of a weird feeling thinking like another guild that just doesn't seem like a good idea. I mean, we're going to split our focus. We're going to split the energy that makes the community go. We're a Jedi guild. That's what we do. And then Lords got born and all it did was double the fun. Right. And so every time we kind of split off like a cell multiplying and there's another community that's born with its own identity, its own culture. And still we're all a part of this big fat soaking family it's cool but it's kind of weird at the same time yeah that is pretty cool to see and it cannot be overstated the move from team speak to discord holy monkeys was that amazing to see i remember when i when i started and i was like hey what's our discord and jay you were like no no no, we're in team speak and i was like what my grandpa uses teams <laughs> we were there we were teasing it it was really kind of uh, <laughs> it would always be embarrassing when we'd be like recruiting in our guild so what's your discord well we don't have a discord what do you mean you don't have a discord we're on team speak oh i don't use team speak anymore it breaks my computer or whatever <laughs> so yeah we did a total transfer into discord and it is really crazy to look at that discord with all those channels i think we have like seven or eight hundred people in our discord now yeah yeah it's crazy it was an awesome move to discord what games are you guys interested in seeing so can expand to in the future Jason and I actually talked about upcoming MMOs and things we like to see so could expand it to the other day. We were tossing future MMOs back and forth. And there's one that has caught my eye. It's it's called Camelot Unchained. It's it's kind of a spiritual successor to Dark Age of Camelot. It's the three, you know, realm be realm be realm situation, and it's all set in the Camelot mythos. And it looks oh, it looks really, really cool. I've dug through the website. There's not a whole lot in development, but they have written tons. And for me, because I am a super nerd and because RP is my primary mode of entertainment when I'm playing an MMO, I want there to be context. I want there to be depth and I want there to be um, I want there to be a story behind what I'm RPing. It's why I can't get into more superficial or shallow games, really. There's got to be some depth. And Camelot Unchained, mm, it's delicious. So much depth behind every character class, behind all three of the realms. There's just so much to it. I stopped reading it because I was just watching the hours whittle away as I was digging through their site. And that, to me, is the mark of a beautiful story that is probably going to back an MMO that I'm going to have my eye on. Yeah, I have kind of been looking at that one. I like also Ashes of Creation, assuming that the development happens on course and it doesn't flounder or flake. Um, they took a turn recently that it didn't make me super happy and did like a, a battle royale release called Apocalypse. And it seems like that focus has shifted from the MMO to this new Apocalypse battle royale. And I don't know. I don't know if they're going to shift it back to the MMO version. I hope they do, because what I was really excited about in Ashes of Creation was the class system, which was basically you take a, a base class and then you can mix it with a base class to come up with like something like 36 or 42 hybrid classes. And I really like that kind of customization in a game rather than just having, you know, your basic three or seven classes. You really can have a different feel to the way you actually interface and create your character in the game. I want to put, do a bard, do a bard. I want to do a priest, I do a priest. Oracles, Templars, Wild Blades. Like what the heck is a Wild Blade? Who knows? But it's in there. That game's <laughs> development is uh, is exciting if they stay on on course. It looks really deep and rich and has player housing. And actually, you build in the world rather than having instanced housing as most MMOs do. 
I can't remember of a of a MMO that does building in world that I've played since Star Wars Galaxies, which I absolutely loved. I think you do it in Black Desert Online. I haven't really gotten into that, but I'm hoping Ashes of Creation is going to be something really cool in the future. I actually yeah. uh, read up on Ashes of Creation actually earlier today, and I think that they're using Apocalypse to test things for the MMO. That being said. Are you guys at all like into the mobile gaming apps that you see? Because I know there are several now that include MMO-like gaming styles. And do you see a potential for Soken to branch into that market? I feel like mobile gaming is for plebes. <laughs> it is, it's certainly for the peasants, <laughs> without a doubt. Although, to play devil's advocate on it, I mean, my wife plays a ton of mobile games. If I'm bored, like if I'm at a restaurant and I'm waiting for a table, I'll hop on my phone and I'll, I'll play a mobile game. I do think as technology advances and we find pads and phones are able to process more, I think we'll see an advent of deep gameplay on mobile devices. I don't think we're there yet. Anytime a game goes mobile, I'm disinterested in it. Yeah, same. I feel like it's just going to be a little piece of garbage. Now, that said, I am kind of looking forward to, I think it's called Blades, Elder Scrolls Blades. We're going to, I'm going to see, I'm holding judgment to see if they can nail an Elder Scrolls experience on a mobile device. I highly doubt it. But maybe we'll see. I do kind of like Elder Scrolls Legends and I kind of liked I don't remember what it's called. It was the Star Wars version of the online game. And we kind of had a little soaking. It wasn't officially soaking community, but several of us soaking people had a little Star Wars team that we that we grouped up with. I wouldn't mind doing something. It's obviously less depth. It's obviously going to be a little more. just paint on the wall to get into a mobile game as community members. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with having an automatic group of people to guild with in those little trash games. Yeah. I don't want to over be over judging. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that that's temporary, though. I do think mobile gaming, it has a future. And I think it, it, it will get to a point where it, it certainly won't be as good as PC gaming, but I think it has the potential to be legit. It just, I don't think it's there yet. So they could make a good part of the community, just not right now. Well, I mean, and I do think that if you're already playing, so I already play Elder Scrolls Legends. It's the card game, like Magic the Gathering, but in the Elder Scrolls universe. If you wanted to group up with Soaken folks to do that, I think that's great. That's one of the benefits of our community being like it is. We can just group up and do, I know there's a group that's grouping up right now to do like Elite Dangerous or grouping up to play Fallout 76 or, you know, some of those games that are rolling out. It's really cool that we have a big community that we can just play and it doesn't have to be super deep but when you're talking about building a guild we're, we're usually talking about you know systems that we implement and, and that just doesn't seem to happen in mobile speaking of soken community at large what do you think makes these guilds work as well as they do if you could tell me quickly it is the people i am always remarkably impressed with the people that come into our community come into our guilds and then want to work and they want to put a piece of themselves on it they want to put their stamp on it Um, We provide a place for people to progress. And I was a person who came into Soken as nothing but a force sensitive. I did my app, became an initiate. I got trained as a Padawan. I became a knight. I got a master. I came on council. Now I'm running a guild. That's really what makes the community so great is that it's a wide open door. What you get out of it is what you put into it. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I'll also tack on um, there is certainly a top-down focus um, in the Soken community. Um, I'll say as a guild leader myself in 
not in Soken, but in other capacities, not having a support network as a guild leader, because if you're not a part of a community like this, you're where the buck stops. Like there's nobody you report to anywhere as a guild leader, but having this Soken larger support network, to me, that is a defining feature of this community because the, the leadership of the community is involved. Leadership of the community, you know, wants to see groups succeed and they can offer advice. They can offer, you know, real feedback. And I think that is what makes or breaks any community is if do you have involved and invested leadership. And I think the Sukum community does as well as really phenomenal folks throughout. Well, hopefully in 2019, we'll see even more expansions in Soken as we delve into new games, expand our media projects and reach into new forms of online community. Uh, be sure to check out Technically Content, our summer video podcast on July 4th for announcements on upcoming projects. Next up, we're getting right back into the debating this show is all about. Let's talk about pay-to-play gaming and the invasion of loot boxes. Since the scandal of EA's Star Wars Battlefront 2, loot boxes have been a huge topic of debate for the gaming community. Do you feel like loot boxes have a place in A-list games like Battlefront or Call of Duty? Jace, you want to? I like. You want to like how we call this? it a scandal, like Watergate, <laughs> yeah. or like the day that the mafia was caught. Um, do they have a place? I mean, I guess we're fighting an uphill battle if we say no. I don't like them. I do not like the fact that it is a rando type of situation. I don't mind spending some money on your game, but just let me buy what I freaking want to buy. Don't make me buy a box and open a hundred of them before I get the actual gun or the actual outfit or the actual house that I want to get. Personally, no, I don't think they have a place. I don't want to have a tacked on money making pyramid scheme inside of my video gaming. It really pulls me out of my immersion and my fun. I will say as controversial as this is going to be, my God, I don't have a problem with them. And I think they can serve a good purpose to keep a game funded and to keep a game that you love alive. If they're implemented, uh, quote unquote, properly. The problem we see is when loot boxes implement things that will help you uh, in a PvP scenario, they help you get the better of your opponents. Like that is when I don't think that they're suitable. But when they're things like cosmetic items, when they're things like a new skin, a new costume, a new hat, to me, I have no problem with them whatsoever. I don't spend a lot of money on loot boxes, so I'm not their primary target. Their target is the whales, the folks who fund these games. And honestly, if there are people out there who have the money to burn on these, and they're the people who are going to keep games that I love alive by blowing money on loot boxes because they get a chance of some cosmetic item, I am 100% in favor. It feels really creepy to me that part of the business plan of the video gaming industry isn't necessarily focused on great product anymore. It's focusing on ways to bilk the community out of more dollars rather than just providing the freaking game. It wasn't that long ago, you guys, when literally people balked when uh, Oblivion had a DLC that was just like cosmetic stuff for your horse. I think it was like $3 and you could get a different armor for your horse in Oblivion. Now we have come so far as to say, yeah, it doesn't matter if you spend $20 in a loot box as long as it's just cosmetic. Like, that's a really big cultural shift in the video gaming community that not that long ago, we were not about spending extra money for cosmetic stuff. And now we're like, oh yeah, but if it's cosmetic, then it's totally fine. It's okay, spend whatever. I I totally disagree. Like Oblivion people bought because it's a single player game. 
like why would you spend money on a cosmetic thing for a single player game in an mmo it's different you want to look pretty so that all your friends can envy you like i don't think cosmetic additions are new nor do i think that the willingness or even the ability to pay for a new cosmetic item is something new or even to be balked at at multiplayer games single player games yeah that's kind of that's kind of weird in oblivion DLC for armor for your horse is completely cosmetic. Yes, that's silly. Nobody sees that but you. But you can beautify your character so that all of your homies can see. That, I'm totally behind. Well, Jace, do you think that they're getting what they're paying for here? Or do you think the gaming designers are kind of leading towards these loot boxes and these this pay-to-play kind of thing and making the in-game accomplishments less rewarding? Um, oh God, we're going to get into economics and talk about value versus price point. And <laughs> I don't know. Ultimately, I do not have a problem with people spending money on video games. It, it, this is a completely recreational type, like from the get go, when you go into Best Buy or or download a game, you're spending a chunk of money for your entertainment purposes. It's to shoot stuff in an imaginary world. So right off the bat, somebody somewhere is going to have a problem that we have a culture that spends money on fake crap, right? So at that point, it's just about frequency and volume and intensity, right? The idea that you're okay with what you're paying and you're getting what you paid for is, is what our economy is based on. If people feel happy enough to do it, then they're going to screw over the people that don't feel happy enough to do it. So there, there's always going to be a tension and a, a push and pull between the consumer and the developers of these games to see what they can get away with. Ultimately, the companies are responsible only to their stockholders, bottom line. That's it. They need to make money. So however they can make money, lie, cheat, steal, it has to happen. Otherwise, they go out of business. And I get that. And I, I want them to be successful because I want video games to continue to get better and better and better. I do kind of have a problem with... The idea that what you get on the front end is ultimately not a full game. It's not a complete experience. It does bother me that the design of that whole economic interface is that we're going to give you a little bit for this $60 input. But if you really want to play more of the game, you got to give us a little more and a little more and a little more and a little more, especially when it's freaking loot boxes. Yeah, I mean, I think the examples you bring up, though, are what I would consider the worst of the bunch. Like, yes, anything can be taken to a negative extreme. Any element of development, any element of um, garnering profit, any element of game design, they can all be taken to a negative extreme. And I agree loot boxes can be a bad thing if they're taken to the negative element if they get to a point where players are given an unfair advantage or players are taken advantage of but i do think that there is a place for loot boxes somewhere shy of that line whatever that line is i'm ill-equipped to define that line other than personally i don't think having cosmetic items in a, a random drawing if you pay for a certain number of loot boxes <clears throat> then you're never sure what you're going to get to me that is on point i like that i dig that element because what it's going to do is it's going to draw on the people who are willing to fund the game in a way outside of or in addition to the box price and maybe the subscription. And if they're willing to do that, by all means, let them do that. Let those people who have that disposable income help fund the game that I love playing. Are there going to be people who maybe can't afford it or shouldn't afford it? Perhaps. Probably. Should they be forbidden from spending that money? I don't know. They're grown-ups. I get, yes, it can be taken too far. But on its face, if it's done responsibly, I'm 100% on board. 
this whole economic talk, do you think smaller game companies or, you know, the indie developers are going to suffer because of the pay to play gaming? Do you think that's having an effect on the indie developers such as Telltale having to uh, shut down because they weren't making enough money? I think that a major corporation is always going to have a leg up on a small indie developer. And what an indie developer needs to do is focus on their mission, focus on what they're trying to do rather than try to compete with the big boy. The problem is the big boys don't play fair and they will buy up those little companies or buy out those little companies or even work to shut down those little companies in order to make their product more appealing. And, and I think that they do that by unfair means. Certainly marketing these loot box type cosmetic things or, or even non-cosmetic things to grown-ups to spend more money, as Leo said, is a way to do that. And that's fine and dandy. But oftentimes the people playing these games are not grown-ups. They are minors. I've heard horror stories about kids getting hold of the phone or getting a uh, parent's credit card and charging up all these bills to these games you know, buying up these loot boxes, buying up these special guns, buying up these cosmetics. Just the other day, I heard one of our guild members talking about it when they were young. He said he spent like $110 on Wizards 101 and got grounded from the computer. And is it predatory, I guess is the question. And it seems like the major corporations are predatory in, in some of their business practices. How they market to kids, how they market to people who are maybe less frugal, how they market towards gambling. You know, there's that whole thing about gambling addiction. And then how they are treating these smaller indie companies who really put out the games that we love in the first place. I think about BioWare and how it has just morphed into not a company that I recognize anymore based on big corporation pressure and big corporation buyout and EA kind of just saying this is the way you got to do business now. I'd like to address a particular thing that you talked about, Jace. It isn't necessarily about shutting down smaller companies, even though I think that that's a reality. You'd mentioned kids who get a hold of their parents' cards and they spend money. I mean, we're both parents. I'll say if I let one of my kids run rampant with my credit card and buy crap, I'm not going to get mad at Amazon for affording them the opportunity to buy things. And I'm not going to get mad at HEB, our, our grocery store here, because they have curbside pickup and they let you order online. The same way I'm not going to get mad at a video game company because they afford the opportunity to buy things online and one of my kids is acting irresponsibly. It's my job as their parent to, to keep them from doing that and to keep them from acting that way. And I think to blame a video game company who has created a system that, I mean, we can argue whether or not it's gambling. I think in some ways it is, but I think in other ways it certainly isn't. You're, you're paying and you kind of have a known quantity. You kind of know what you're potentially going to get. But I don't think if a child steals your credit card, that that's the company fault. I just can't hold them accountable for that. Right. And ultimately, there is a responsibility that a grown-up has to have with their information. However, in this day and age, the reality is you can spend loads of money by knowing a code on a phone. You can spend loads of money by things that autofill on a website. My Google Chrome is remembering all of my passwords and remembering all of my credit card numbers. And if my kid sits down right after me and I have forgotten to delete all of my information, those predatory practices take advantage of that reality. Yes, ultimately the responsibility lies with the owner of the device. I, I'm not really against your, that point. But I do think that there is, as soon as you have 
money, marketing, and coercive practices that are working against the parent, against the people who ultimately, you know, are holding the, the purse strings of the family, then the responsibility does lie with the corporation to a, to a certain extent. I just recently heard about some kid that spent like 3,000 bucks on a phone game buying like gems for something because you know all you do is put in your little number and it charges your itunes account it, it's kind of freaky scary i feel like i sound like my own dad when i'm like where are the parents but that's my line like where are the parents in those situations i really can't <laughs> hold the video game developer accountable for that any more than i would hold amazon accountable if my daughter decided that she was going to buy a thousand hot topic shirts off of off of amazon like yeah, I, I'm I'm unhappy with that decision that she made, and I'm unhappy with her irresponsibility at that point. But I'm not going to hold Amazon responsible for it, even though they advertised for it. They put those pictures of those awesome shirts with all those cool little logos and things on them that she really wanted. Any more than a video game, who's going to put a picture of the cool item that they might get if they spent the money? To me, it just seems like it's not the same standard. There are practices though which are ethically wrong, and we have to be able to hold a corporate accountable. Fortnite is huge right now, especially with the little kiddos. There's a study out that those, the people who play Fortnite are spending like 80, 90 bucks. Every person who spends money is spending 80, 90 bucks on Fortnite crapola. I believe they're all PewDiePie's nine-year-olds. <laughs> Probably so. <laughs> but you know, like even advertising, for instance, that's corporation-driven, whatever. There are regulations on how you can advertise. You can't advertise cigarettes online, for instance, because it's considered unfair. You can't use right. um, characters like cartoon characters to sell tobacco. There are regulations that a corporation has to be accountable to. And so much of the online life is, is so new that the regulations haven't caught up and they are taking advantage of the way that we live our lives online right now. Totally agreed. I do think those advertising regulations though are about things that could kill you. And I don't think spending a little too much money in a video game is going to lead directly to your death, but perhaps indirectly because you can't afford groceries. But I, I do think they're a little bit different. I think one's way more serious. Joe Camel, way more serious. They're marketing cigarettes to children. Like that's really, really bad juju. Well, next but time like, my daughter charges on my credit card, I'm coming to your house for a sandwich. <laughs> you, I will give you a sandwich, Jace. I'd happily give you a sandwich. All right. Well, it looks like one way or another, pay-to-play gaming may be here to stay. If you're for or against this style of gaming, remember to vote with your wallet. The game designers will listen to their fan base on their sales, so make your voice heard. Disney recently announced at Comic-Con 2018 that Star Wars The Clone Wars would be getting a new season when their streaming service launches later this year. I'm curious to see what they'll be doing and if or how it's going to affect other fan favorite but canceled shows. The show is returning in major part because of the fans' requests for it. Do you guys think the show will live up to those expectations of the fans and do you have any expectations yourselves? This is Star Wars. It will not live up to the expectations of the fans. <laughs> that is a foregone conclusion. I can't think of anything past Jedi, Return of the Jedi, that is, that has lived up to the expectations of the fans. <laughs> I mean, well, but the original series did because it, it had like a lot of fan love. I mean, it brought it back once already. I've heard the Clone Wars lauded as 
the best thing to come out of Star Wars since the initial trilogy. I think it's been a fan favorite. I mean, that's why it's back. So I do think um, most of the folks who were involved in the creation of the Clone Wars are coming back or have been back. I don't know if they've already done it or not, but you know, it's, it's coming out. But I think the same minds who made it are going to be making this. So I do have high hopes that it will at least meet the expectations of folks who loved the original Clone Wars. Whether or not that meets the expectations of the Star Wars community at large, I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm kind of a, a cynical person when it comes to that, just like Jace. I don't think Star Wars fans are happy with much. We are a hard group to please. It is true. So the thing about Clone Wars is the, the jumping off point is so good. I guess that could have been said about original trilogy too, but the jumping off point is to a place where if you watch Clone Wars, the earlier seasons seem a little bit more kid oriented. The series actually grows up over the seasons and the storylines actually become some really good episodic content. My hope, my expectation is that with this kind of re-release or this return to Clone Wars, first of all, that we get to see to the end of the Clone War but also that the storylines grow up with us because a lot of the people that watched it watched it when they were younger. They have aged up. We, we need the storylines to age up as well. And they did really well at that in the first seasons. So I expect that they'll, they'll continue that trend and, and tell the stories that are kind of deserving or of the, of the Star Wars moniker and the Clone Wars moniker specifically being that um, you know, obviously that's the medium that they're continuing the tale in. Totes. I, I'll, I'll say when I, when I first watched or started watching the Clone Wars, it was from the early episodes. And I remember thinking, okay, this is something for my kids. And I was disinterested. I since watched uh, some of the later episodes and was really impressed at the kind of depth that's actually there. I'll say there's a lot of shows out there that try to capture the spirit of what it is to be a soldier. And having been a soldier, I'm a little bit biased when it comes to what the perspectives are and what the stories are told. And I'll say the stuff that I saw from the Clone Wars was really well done. There was a depth and there was some moral gray and there was some uh, some challenges there that are kind of unique to the life of a soldier that I don't think come naturally to folks. Um, the, the life of a soldier is very uh, outside the norm. And I think they really, really captured that. I like that they don't just have a hero or two heroes. It really is a story about not just Anakin and not just Obi-Wan and not just Ahsoka who became um, a really important figure, but it's about a number of the clones too. And their stories are really intriguing and very interesting. And I'm, I'm confident that, that that's going to carry over into this next season because it was such an important piece of, of what it was before. Well, just, they weren't afraid to go dark in clone wars, which I appreciate because a whole part of the star Wars mythos is the dark side, which is truly right. If you really want to experience the dark side, it's a dark, dark side. Um, we don't often get to see the darkness of the dark side. A lot of the times it's kind of glossed over or, um, or kidified in a lot of ways. This, the episodes um, with Anakin actually seeing the prophecy about becoming Vader to allow one of your kid hero favorites to go dark or to see what it means to go dark. Darth Vader is one of the seminal villains of all time. And that character, Anakin, in that little cartoon series becomes that 
ultimate dark Darth Vader. And for them to kind of tackle that, what it means to turn, what it means to allow yourself to indulge your, your darker impulses, that's really kind of cool that they would do that in that format on that program. Speaking of Ahsoka, I know, Leo, you hadn't watched much Clan Wars, but try and chime in if you can. Don't judge me. I'm not judging. I'm just saying you didn't get a whole lot of her or to know her as well as, you know, the fans did. Do you think the show is going to be better off without her? Are you excited to see her come back or do you think she should come back? So I think companies do what they've got to do to draw in their fan base. And Ahsoka is enough of a fan favorite that it would have been silly to not bring Ahsoka back. Now, yes, Ahsoka, Ahsoka's death, I think it would have been a tremendous story and it would have been significant character development for everybody else involved. But when you have a character who is so beloved by fans, it's silly not to bring them back. You kind of have to, not only because you'll have people watching just for her, but because you have the opportunity to really finish her story in a way that wasn't possible with the previous um, episodes. So I think they would have been silly not to bring it back. I'm pissed about it, honestly. I get it. Ahsoka is very popular and we know she's going to be in the series. She's on the freaking trailer for Clone Wars, the new, the new seasons. And fine, bring her back if you think she's a fan favorite. What irks me about it is that they have already, <laughs> they've already kind of rounded out the story. She made appearances in Star Wars Rebels, which takes place after the Clone Wars series. So we already kind of know about that spoiler alert that final face-off between she and Vader in Rebels. We know that she's the rebel named Fulcrum giving secret information to the crew of the Ghost, which is, you know, the, the, the main crew of, of Rebels. So it, it bothers me a little bit that they're going to try to plug in this little bit of, of history and lore that was not at all referred to in Rebels. I mean, she had a pretty dramatic kind of exit in in Clone Wars. It feels like a pigeonhole to me. It feels like a little bit of pandering to put her in at this stage of the game, knowing that, you know, we kind of saw this culmination in Rebels that now (laughs) I guess we sort of have to forget about to go back with her being with her master Anakin again over again. I I mean, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to work. Well, I'll only say whether controversial or not, I do think that It was a responsible decision to bring her back in. And whether or not her being banished has a significant effect on the plot. I don't think the developers really had, or not the developers, but the writers really had a choice in the matter. She's so loved. Um, I, I think it just had to be done. So with the return of the Clone Wars, returns of fan favorites is something that's happened before, such as Family Guy, where people petitioned. And um, I think there was a show, Jericho, where they sent Peanuts and Roswell, where they sent Tabasco sauce to these stations to get these shows put back on the air. So there are other shows that were ended or canceled that are very popular and have a large fan backing, such as The Office. And yet you've got Steve Carell saying most folks want it to be what it was and it wouldn't be. Ultimately, I think it's maybe best to leave well enough alone. Do you think more canceled shows with huge fan bases like The Office or Firefly should continue being made? It depends on the life of the story. Um, Honestly, I, I don't know that it's great just to bring something back for the sake of bringing something back. That is all the rage right now. 
for instance, Roseanne's show went off decades ago. They brought it back and then she had a political situation. They took her off. The show is still ongoing without Roseanne and it's called The Connors. Is it good? I don't know. I'm not going to watch it. It's not Roseanne. So that seems like something that was just kind of forced for a nostalgia reason. Firefly is a different situation. They didn't get to finish the story of Firefly. It was great, fantastic show. So I guess my answer is it depends on if there's still stories to tell in that universe or in that narrative. Yeah, I'm all about it if it's great, if it's worth doing. If the story's over, then let it be over and don't force something on us that's going to wreck our happy. I think certainly if there's more story to be told, yes. But there are certain instances where it's not a story. Like Roseanne is episodic. I don't know if that's the right term. But every episode is kind of its own individual story. It's just a matter of what story wants to be told, given the characters and the setting that you have. So with Firefly, yes, totally agree. It was not good that it got cut when it did. I'm so happy that they made Serenity, the movie. And I think that was a beautiful bow to put on that story. When it comes to shows that are simply episode after episode, there's so much to be said with what's funny versus what's interesting versus are you drawing a story out just for the sake of it or are you really making a good plot? Some shows that come back are fantastic. It depends on whether or not you have that lightning in a bottle. If you have the right writers, if you have the right actors, if you have the right people involved, that matters. I won't say more. No, no, no. I will say more. You can have a good story and you can have crap writers and they're going to make a crap story. If you have a bad story, but if you have good writers, you can turn that bad story into good. When you have something like Ghostbusters, oh, Ghostbusters was amazing. That was lightning in a bottle. When Ghostbusters has been remade, it just hasn't been remade with the same kind of magic because the same people aren't involved. The same writers, the same, the same minds behind what made that magic in the past just aren't there. That to me is the piece that if that's not there, don't try it. But if you have the same people, if you have the same folks, yes, you should probably do it again. So do you feel like there is more after Serenity that could be said for Firefly? Oh, I do. That universe is so wildly unexplored and it was so yeah. intriguing. There was, even if we didn't focus on Mal's crew, which I wouldn't love because I loved his crew, there's just so much that we don't even know. We don't know how they got to be how they are. That whole, the Browncoat Rebellion War, there's just so much depth. I'll, I'll say this, Joss Whedon created a vast, wide, huge universe and we only got just a taste of it. And I would love to have a full meal. But as Leo was pointing out, if you don't have the same writers, then it's not necessarily the same. So could you do Firefly without Joss? Oh, no. Let me add a caveat. (laughs) (laughs) Because if you have something as brilliant as that, I think other good writers could probably do it. I think we've seen that with Star Wars. You have tons of writers who have been involved in Star Wars. And they've made some good and they've made some bad. But if you can make the good, mm mm-mm. And I think that is a universe that is ripe for it. All right. Well, speaking of Star Wars here, then you've got your non-main focus world movies like Rogue One or Solo. How do you think the writing played into those two movies and how they were received? So I think Rogue One was a great movie. And I think Solo was also a really good movie. Jason and I have had a few arguments about Star Wars um, in the past. (laughs) (laughs) But I will say, I think, unfortunately, some of the bad press that Solo has gotten, like its box office sales, has been the result of other movies because they've been disappointing. Solo itself was good. 
I really enjoyed it. I think it, they were well written. I think the characters were well developed, and I think the stories themselves were well told. They were also they were gritty, which Star Wars didn't tend to do. Yes, there were deaths, but they weren't gritty deaths. And they also focused on non Force sensitive characters, which is, in my opinion, sometimes the more interesting story. Now, granted, that's not to take away. Um, from obviously the the initial trilogy and the prequels and what's going on now, but there are some really really intriguing stories with non force sensitive folks in this world of crazy space wizards with you know sabers of light. Like that's a crazy universe to live in, and they can make some really good stories. And I think they did with Rogue One and with Solo. I think they did better on the. I think they're calling them a Star Wars story. I think they did better with those than they did when they were continuing the saga. There's a little piece of me (laughs) that just sort of wishes they would have just focused on these kind of extraneous stories, these outlier stories. I wasn't super interested in knowing Han Solo's backstory. We know Han Solo. We know how he came into the Star Wars saga. We know how he exited. To give him that young Star Wars thing, I I wasn't interested in that. However... The movie was freaking fun to watch. So, you know, I didn't see it in the theater. It was the first Star Wars film that I did not see in the theater. I watched it when it came out on on DVD. But I really, really liked it. And it got undersold because of a bloat of Star Wars stories. Uh, A reboot that is happening with Star Wars that made all of us a little bit sick and tired of the franchise. I do feel like Rogue One and Solo are some of the best Star Wars that we have seen. Yeah, agreed. And I'll have to agree as well, seeing as how I like my non-Force users. But be that as it may, we'll be seeing Clone Wars return for a 12-episode run on Disney streaming service later this year. And I, for one, am looking forward to it. And last but not least, we have a special guest today, Argrix or Argie from Sokin's Guild War II Guild, Valiant Ascent, is here to talk with us about what it's like to begin a new guild in Sokin. Welcome, Argie, Sharkboy, and all the other names you're known by. Argie, before we get into to, to really talking about the Sokin stuff, why do they call you Sharkboy? Well, that's a long story, but I'll give you the short version. I hate sharks. I don't think you need to be embarrassed of that in any way. Sharks are terrifying and anybody who gives you guff about it is wrong. They seem to have followed me all the way to Guild Wars 2, so... I'm sorry, then, I guess. Well, stay out of the deep end, Argie. Okay, so hmm. you and me have both had the opportunity to, to make a new Soken Guild kind of from scratch. We get it. I, I, I understand the process. You guys went through a lot of the same things that we went through in Divine Conclave. What was it like for you when you were coming up with the basic ideas and kind of the concept for what you, the systems in the guild would, would look like. It was very interesting for me to jump from a sci-fi setting all the way to something that was not a sci-fi setting. Having to come up with the different structure and even the storyline within the guild was interesting because it gave me the opportunity to explore a different form of creation and imagination that I got to open up to other people about. I think in the grand scheme of things, Guild Wars 2, like any other MMORPG, is a game that's heavily reliant on the lore that the devs make. And to that end, the players within the game are very defensive of the lore. So finding a way to kind of ride that wave in and come up with a storyline for the guild without damaging the overall core lore of the game was a task. It was interesting, but it was also fun because everyone got to develop their own story. We got to develop our stories and it was great. I enjoyed it very much. And I think the hardest part of it was actually coming up with the name itself, to be quite honest with you. 
Well, it's a very poetic name. I will say, as somebody who has forged into a new a new genre of soaking of guild gaming, I will say it's kind of a disclaimer. You know, there is a limitation to to the types of of MMO guilds that we can create. We always the community officers are looking for guilds to go into games that are growing and and expanding. We wouldn't want to go into SWG for instance to to make a guild. So there there really are limitations on where and how we can make soaking guilds work. Oh, absolutely. And of course, like I was saying, it's absolutely reliant on the player base in there. I'll say as the resident lore hound of our ESO guild, I love your answer there <laughs> trying to make sure that you honor the lord mm, love it so in addition to that with the with the creation of a valiant ascent um what would you say were some of the biggest challenges uh, that you faced getting valiant ascent started uh, in guild wars 2 well i already addressed one which is right off the bat becoming familiar with the lore but that was very easy to get by because the game itself takes place on one world. So there's no really branching out to other places and different settings. I mean, the world is huge, but it's easy to learn the backstory of each species and region within the world itself. I think another challenge right off the bat when the guild was created was finding those regular players to help us supply the storyline. Uh, obviously, as as you know, any guild that exists only survives based on the people who are willing to participate in the overall increasing of it, you know, the basic sustainment of it. So finding those regular players was primary obstacle we had to get over. And we were lucky enough to be in a game that had people who just loved roleplay and were ready to contribute to that overall sustainment of the storyline. And I think finally, I came from a game, like I was saying, that has the opportunity to have more freedom with roleplay as a whole. Not to say that this game is kind of more leashed on what you're allowed to do, but there was definitely, you definitely had to be a bit more careful. There were a lot more hurdles that you had to get over in order to make sure everyone was happy and that you weren't conflicting with any stories. Other than that, for me, it was relatively easy to come to that understanding and figure out what's good within the game and what doesn't work. So 100%. one of your obstacles was, you said, finding the right people, getting the people in. Ultimately, that boils down to recruitment. And as someone who has started a guild, I know that recruitment is the lifeblood of our guild, but it's also one of the most unsung uh, pieces of, of guild life. Nobody really wants to recruit. It's not fun um, for a lot of people. Some people kind of have that knack. In your experience, when y'all were building Valiant Ascent and even into today, what are some tips and tricks and advice you'd give to people in terms of recruiting for a guild? Well, when people are recruiting, they get kind of turned off to it very easily based on the amount of people they can get. So it's heavily reliant on the time you're at and where you're located. Once you figure out where the main hubs of the game are, it's pretty easy from there to start getting people. I was lucky enough to, you know, be in a game where RP is appreciated and people love to RP and create characters and storylines they're proud to be a part of. It's just you have to find the particular people, the people that are going to last and help contribute to the overall story. Those are the type of people that we always look for. Basically, quality over quantity. So finding the people that want to create a story, that's what we look for. And the main obstacle, I think, is consistency. You never want someone who only comes on really... Once, a, you know, once every few months or so on and so forth. 
And that can be a big turnoff to regular players when, you know, people are only coming online every now and again. So again, just finding the right place to recruit people, kind of adhering to their want to RP more and expand their own character story and appealing to their better sense of imagination is really the lifeblood of recruiting, as you said. So in addition to recruiting folks who are interested in a good RP experience, there are folks throughout the Soken community who um, aspire to be part of the leadership someday. And honestly, the kinds of folks who create the atmosphere uh, that our peers are interested in being a part of. So what kinds of things are you looking for as a guild leader? What kinds of things separate role players from junior officer and potential leadership for you? What are you looking for? Well, there are three points right off the bat that I look for. It's attitude, commitment, and consistency. Basically, I want to have people have the right attitude about the guild. And what I mean by that is I want them to be committed to having the guild grow. I don't want to have people that, you know, are here just to stay on once in a while and, you know, just are here for a position of power, things like that. You know, in terms of commitment, it goes back to that whole, you know, staying online only every once in a while. And, you know, we look for the people that are online constantly or as constantly as possible and are contri finally contributing to the growth of the guild. You know, people who are there to help out others, get them in, teach them how to role play, have their char grow their character as well. You know, being a heavy RP guild, that's the main point that we go by there. Hallelujah. I've often said as, as a GM, I'm not really looking for people who want to be leaders. I'm looking for people who want to serve. Um, that's the best leadership I've ever seen are people who want to create and, and undergird what other people are doing. Um, I'll, I'll kind of ask you this question by giving my answer, but one of the coolest things that I've seen in, in our guild is a little idea that I had, a spark of an idea that I had going out into the community, into the people that we've recruited, and they take that spark and make it into a full-blown flame with their own life and their own. They make it bigger than I ever could have imagined with their own ideas and their own energy. And that, that has been really cool to me, a real rewarding experience. I would ask you, what has been the most rewarding part of being a leader in your guild up to this point? I got to tell you one thing. I logged in one day. Here's a small story. I logged in one day and just seeing people, you know, RPing, as simple as that sounds, but just RPing. You know, we gave people a basis. Our guild gave people a base and a foundation to start from to grow their character. And they got that confidence and that motivation to write up their own story and then carry it out. And I think that's probably the best part of being in a guild in Soken is that Soken gives people the opportunity to create these characters and live out their own story, write them out. And it's it sparks the flame of imagination within people. I think that's one of the best facets of being in Soken is that it fuels the imagination of everyone, you know? So, 100%. So you and I have known each other for a long time now. Mm. Two years. I just want to know, how has Soken impacted your life? Like, new friendships, uh, anything else? Like, how, how has this community impacted you? Well, to be quite honest with you, it's been great for my self-confidence and great for my leadership abilities. 
I actually want to point out that when I first joined Soken a few months later, I got picked for a manager position at my actual job. And being a junior officer in Soken, I was able to kind of take the skills I learned from there and apply it to what I do out of uh, the Soken world. <laughs> Along with that, just to briefly touch on that self-confidence thing, I really never have been able to flesh out my inner imagination, you know, thinking about all these great characters and what I'd like to do with them and thinking about what I want their story to be. And Soken gave me the opportunity to do that. And I think the most important thing that Soken has given me is the amount of friends I've made. You know, everyone here has been absolutely outstanding. And I honestly wouldn't, I would not trade anything for the friendships I've made. Oh, Arky. I know. Oh, I that is super cool. Uh, I, well, I, I can't follow that with anything, man. That's awesome. Um, I wish I could figure out a way to put MMO guild leadership on a resume and to have an interview take it seriously. I haven't figured out a way to do that yet. Hey, listen, I have literally <laughs> told people, put it on your resume. I'm somebody that read res reads resumes you know, pretty often. I'm a boss in, in the real world. If somebody put on their guild leadership or uh, online community leadership, I would take that very seriously. I say put it on your resume. <laughs> I think you're an anomaly, Jace, though. <laughs> Why do people keep telling me that? Basically, that's saying I'm weird. <laughs> Well, you know, you're weird. So, Argy, I am really, really glad to hear all of that personal development and slash professional development stuff. I do think it's something, it's also been really good for me. And I'll ask, um, with your development of Valiant Ascent, my experience in other RP communities has been to see RP guilds come and go. They, they pop in, there's a cool idea, but there isn't really solid leadership behind it or there isn't, you know, it's not really fleshed out. And RP guilds come and go. They're like, um, it's like water. I mean, they just, they, they flow in and out. So what is it that separates Valiant Ascent from all of the other fly-by-night RP guilds um, out there in Guild Wars 2? And how do you intend to um, express that difference to the community? One thing that I've been surprised to find within Guild Wars 2 that separates us from everyone else is the fact that we create our own story arcs. Everyone kind of, you know, just for example, some guilds create their story based off of what the actual in-game story is. But we prefer to write up our own, you know, our own villains, our own storyline. And the reason for this is because I feel like that'll help people better define their, better define their characters. You know, they have that extra freedom and that separation from the core lore of the game to be able to say, hey, this is what I want my character to be. This is how I want them, you know, how I want them to act within fair reason, you know. But the one obstacle I'd say within all that is, I touched on that briefly before, is that the Guild Wars 2 community is very defensive of their lore. So our story arcs, we have to be very careful that our story arcs don't heavily impact or would feasibly heavily impact anything within the actual game you know and yeah. it's very it's actually very good to have people within the guild wars 2 community who are very defensive of that lore because it shows that you know they're readily motivated to keep to that lore and readily motivated to create a character based on a lore that they're not restricted to which they may have to tackle within other guilds, you know? Yeah. So I think, you know, when we offer them that opportunity, that's something that keeps them that keeps them in our guild. 
hundred percent, man. Being grounded in the lore is one of those things that I consider to be critical to the success of a guild. I mean, if you have a hundred people and you all can't agree on what it is you're RPing in, why are you even doing it? The, the lore is the thing that keeps you all in the same place. Totally agree. It is the glue that binds us together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's all the time we've got for today. Thanks so much for talking to us today, Argy. Hope it wasn't too traumatizing. You can check oh, out Lord. Valiant Ascent via the Guild Wars 2 tab on the Soken homepage, SokenGaming.com. All right. We have hundreds of events happening every week in Star Wars The Old Republic, Elder Scrolls Online, World of Warcraft, our Dungeons and Dragons groups, Final Fantasy XIV, and Guild Wars 2. Check us out on SokenGaming.com to see more about our events and all our different guilds and games offered by the Soken Gaming Community. Soken Gaming Community. I would also like to say a big fat congratulations to the new community officers over the last couple of years. That would be me, moi, as well as Silois, who is the uh, producer of this podcast among all of our media. Cadis, who might be one of the coolest chicks you could ever meet. Jaycon, who is serious as a mofo about all the kinds of things. And of course, Molin and Zimlid, who have been here since, I don't know, Jesus was a teenager or something. Um, it's really great to, to see the community officer team growing like that. And um, it's super exciting to be part of it. Also to our GMs, Argies, an action, Doofer, my icy brother from another mother, Jaycon, and Blue. A big shout out to them for leading our guilds and making making the world a better place in Silken life. Well, thank you for that serenade, Jason. Thank you, Leo, both of you for being here. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. Have a happy Valentine's Day, single or a couple. You do you. And keep an eye out on our website for announcements about our official return for the fourth season of the Soken podcast. Stay classy, Soken. Thank you for tuning into the Soken Podcast. Want to be part of Soken? Check us out on Twitter and YouTube at Soken Gaming. And make sure to visit SokenGaming.com to join one of our many roleplay guilds today.